This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Trace. Thanks for tuning in again to Seeker Plus. This is a show where we take a huge topic and we break it down so we all understand it a bit better. This week, we're airing an episode from our archives about the weather, which when it comes to huge things, there aren't many systems on our planet that are more complex, fascinating, or influential than our weather and climate. It doesn't sound like the sexiest topic, but trust me, it is super cool. We'll be talking today about dangerous weather events, how humans can affect the weather, how the weather has shaped human history, ancient weather, future weather. This is gonna get crazy. So let's kick into it. How dangerous is weather? So from 2006 to 2010, about 2,000 US residents died each year from weather-related causes. 31% of those are Deaths attributed to exposure, to excessive natural heat, heat stroke, sunstroke, or a combination of some of those. Those are all terrible things that can happen to you. Your body overheats and you end up dying. It's actually considered a public health issue because it can exacerbate pre-existing chronic conditions like cardiovascular, cerebral, and respiratory diseases. Things that you already have can be made worse just by getting it a little bit hotter. It doesn't just make you want to take off all your clothes. You can actually die. Close to 63% of these heat-related deaths were attributed to exposure of excessive cold, hypothermia, or both. So not just heat, but cold can also kill you. Humans evolved in a pretty warm part of the planet. You can learn more about that in our human series. Make sure you check that out. But now we live all over the place. And as the weather shifts, things are going to get crazy. The remaining 6% of those deaths, by the way, were attributed to like floods, storms, lightnings, things that you're seeing on the news. So we're talking about stuff that you're not seeing on the news, and it's the weather, and it can kill you. There have been five mass extinctions in the history of our planet. I know this doesn't sound like it's going to be the weather. Trust me, it is. More than 99% of all species that have ever lived on Earth are now dead, extinct, gone. 95% of those either died out because they couldn't compete successfully for food or other resources, or they failed to adapt as things changed around them, their local climate or weather. So weather and climate has basically killed billions of things over the course of the history of our planet. So let's break those down, shall we? Working from the beginning of time that we understand until now, so 440 million years ago, the first, or the oldest really, was the end Ordovician mass extinction. This was 440 million years ago, and an estimated 82 to 88% of all species were wiped out in that event. That's a lot. Of course, at the time, most of these were in the water, a lot of them. Uh, A lot of microorganisms, a lot of smaller plants and things. I mean, this was a long time ago. The world, what happened is the world entered this kind of intense ice age. And when that happened, the ice sheets dropped sea levels dramatically because as they form, they're sucking up all this water to make ice. And this global cooling killed off a lot of the warm adapted species. So without the climate remaining the same, things died. Get ready, because you're going to sense a pattern here. Over about a million years, glacial conditions ended, and then rapidly sea levels rose again, 
And that means water that was low in oxygen was flooding into the ocean and killing a lot more species. It's bad. Then like 100 million years later, the late Devonian mass extinction happened. This was 375 to 359 million years ago. This killed 79 to 87% of all the species that had lived or become living even more, like evolved in between those two extinctions. And this is again a theme that you're gonna see, a lot of things are dying. This is a major environmental change during the Devonian mass extinction. They think, again, it had to do with a lack of oxygen in the ocean combined with rising sea levels and maybe global cooling. I don't know if all that sounds familiar, but it should. So all these photosynthesizing plants, plants that were getting stuff from the sun, and well, they couldn't do their jobs as well. They ended up dying. Volcanic eruptions may have also caused some climate change, and it may have also been large meteor impacts, which we couldn't really know at this point. We haven't found any large meteor impact craters that line up with this timing, but this is a long time ago, so we're working with some hypotheses here. The end Permian mass extinction was about 252 million years ago. They called this the Great Dying. Already sounds bad, also a cool band name. 93 to 97% of all species died at that point, which means we, again, are all descendants of those maybe 4% of animals that were left after this extinction. That includes 82% of every genus all genera. That's crazy. That's so much. Essentially what happened here is there was a volcanic eruption and it was one of the largest ever. And over the course of 600,000 years, this volcano erupted, throwing basalt lava all across Siberia, covering an area seven times the size of France. This volcano released so much gas into the atmosphere that over the short term, Sulfur dioxide caused acid rain, which caused global cooling. And then over the long term, that CO2 greenhouse gas effect that we're sort of experiencing now warmed up the oceans. So we got cold and then warm again, and that caused a lot of death. I mean, I feel like this could have been on the news like next week. It's crazy how much this sounds like stuff we're experiencing now. The end Triassic mass extinction was around 201 million years ago. Don't think this is the dinosaur one, That's we're not there yet. This happened really fast. In as little as 10,000 years, 76 to 84% of all species on Earth were eliminated again. Man, can't catch a break. This uh, is when most mammal-like reptiles and large amphibians disappeared, and many dinosaur groups, but not all the dinosaurs, yet. The problem with this one is we don't actually understand all of the extinctions particularly well, and this is the one we understand the least. We think that it was probably falling sea levels and then shallow seas, which created a, a problem in the oceans, which caused a lot of die-off, because the oceans are kind of the lifeblood of our planet. They are pretty big. Then when water levels rose again, it was very low in oxygen, and on top of that, volcanic eruptions may have changed the overall climate. The end Cretaceous mass extinction, this is probably the most famous one, the one that most of you have heard of. This happened 66 million years ago, 65 million years ago. This is 81% at the top end of all species died. A lot of, lot of species, including bye-bye dinosaurs. Famously, this one is associated with a pretty large asteroid impact. You, again, probably have heard of this because we have some evidence of this. We can find a giant crater on our planet that may have caused this extinction. Of course, it's still up for debate because we weren't there. We don't know everything about it. It was a long time ago after all, but we're pretty sure. What happened then is the geography of the Earth was changed dramatically. Sea levels dropped. 
150 meters in less than a million years, which is just a blink of an eye in geologic time. There was volcanic activity, toxic gases. The Earth's atmosphere was messed up and everything got really cold and the volcanic eruptions decreased uh, temperatures and then dumped CO2, which increased temperatures, causing another greenhouse effect and a 10 degrees Celsius increase. Now, 10 degrees Celsius doesn't sound like a lot, but right now we're talking about climate change having a two-degree increase, and that's a big deal. So right now, according to a new study in Science Advances, we may be losing a species at 100 times greater rates than we should be. If that doesn't sound like an extinction, I don't know what is. So scientists are saying this is the sixth great extinction. We're at the very beginning of it. Remember, these things happen over thousands of years. And in the last 500, we've lost at least 340 almost documented species in the vertebrate community. This is all human cost, so way to go us. That's not including, by the way, that, that 340 number is not including bacteria. It's not including insects lost. That's not including plant life lost. That's not including invertebrates in any way. An untold number of species are going to disappear and this is before we even discover them, before we observe them. We're learning about new species all the time still, and there are probably ones we'll never know about because we've helped them go extinct by changing the Earth's climate on our own. As the Earth enters this sixth mass extinction, as some scientists have claimed, we'll have to prove somehow that current extinction rates are above what was a background rate or a prevailing rate of extinction, which is fairly normal on the planet Earth. So according to an interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Elizabeth Colbert, island populations are very vulnerable to extinction because of their isolation. They don't have anywhere else to go. There are few, if any, extinctions, she says, that we humans know about in the last 100 years that would not have taken place without human activity. It's pretty heavy. Honestly, whether or not humans survive isn't all that important. The question is, without all of these animals, if we lost 90% of all the animals and plants, bacteria, everything on the planet, would we really want to be here afterward? But we probably should break down the difference between weather and climate. A lot of people get these confused. Weather is short term. Weather can last minutes, you know, like a quick downpour, that's weather. It can also last months, like wintertime, that's also weather. Weather is basically the way the atmosphere is behaving now. This is according to NASA, who observe a lot of our weather thanks to their weather satellites. Climate is the long-term pattern of weather. So if weather is short-term, take a bunch of weather together <laughs> and you get climate. Climate is the weather of a particular area over time. So pretty easy, right? Weather short-term, climate long-term. For a bit of perspective, though, on the global climate, Serbian mathematician... Milutin Milenkovic figured out how the climate clock cycles. A lot of what we talk about is terms of extinction and geologic events. One of those is ice ages. And the climate clock works as a 100,000-year cycle. Every 100,000 years, the Earth gets a little closer or farther away from the sun, and these tiny motions are enough to change our climate and cause ice ages. It may happen sometimes, really not a big deal. Currently, we should be in a cooling period, according to a NASA study from the early 20th century, but we're actually not. We're not in that cooling period. Why? I'm glad you asked. Climate change. Yep, if you're a denier, I'm sorry for you. 
because it's real and it's happening right now. And this is everybody's favorite topic. Global warming or climate change is an average surface temperature increase on our planet, and it is being affected by humanity. It's being affected by humanity because of our activity. We cover most of the planet. More than 80% of the planet has some human activity evidence on it. That is more than any other species alive today, for sure. Scientific consensus maintains that climate change is due to fossil fuels in the major part. By the way, I did say scientific consensus because yes, there are some scientists who deny it, but I'm not gonna give them any play on this show because they're so small a number and their papers are so small in terms of the number published that it's not worth talking about. Scientific consensus says that climate change is due to fossil fuels for the most part. They release carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs into the atmosphere. And that affects how the earth can handle itself, essentially. We're affecting stuff all over the damn place. Evidence suggests that sulfur-laced aerosol exhaust emitted by cargo ships on the ocean can change the structure of high clouds in our atmosphere, making them more reflective and possibly cooling temperatures over the water. That affects our overall climate, which that might be a good thing, but we'll come back to that, don't worry. Agriculture can also affect how sunlight is reflected and absorbed and thus affect the overall climate of our planet. And maybe you've heard of this, it's the famous cow farts problem. Essentially, how we're using our land is releasing different gases than if it was covered in forest, say. So cows release a lot of methane because they eat a lot of plants. Then they're using their digestive tract, which is a complicated process that you can watch over on DNews if you like. But they break down all of those grains and grasses and they release a lot of methane. Methane is 20 times more harmful than CO2. So that's bad. There's also deforestation in general. So as our land use is changing, we are affecting what is happening in the atmosphere again because trees aren't absorbing as much carbon dioxide. And those trees are no longer there to also block how the sun hits the earth. It's not just humans though. To say that humans are the only thing causing global climate change, global warming, climate change in general, is false. We're not alone in this. There are also natural causes. Volcanic activity can cause short-term effects on our climate. There's changes in solar radiation patterns. The sun is in a period of high activity at the moment. Earth's orbit around the sun that I mentioned earlier in the 100,000-year ice age cycle can affect how our climate works. Plus, as the Earth warms, which is probably due to us, it will release more methane trapped in polar regions. That's naturally trapped there. As that's released, we're even more screwed. But it's not entirely all our fault, we're just kind of spurring it on. On top of that, pollution in the atmosphere can rain down on that white snow, turning it darker colored. Then it absorbs more sunlight, causing it to heat up, causing it to melt and release more methane. All this is great, right? This sounds great. On top of that, clouds can change. Cloud cover can change, affecting how the sun hits the earth and how things warm. In the end though, is the weather changing? That's not. The weather isn't actually changing too much. It still rains, it's still hot, it's still cold. We're gonna experience that for a long time. It's just different. The climate is different. 
how things are in their extremes are different. The CDC has a quote that says, the frequency and intensity of all types of extreme weather events, heat waves, cold snaps, floods, storms, and lightning is expected to increase in the future as a result of these changing weather patterns. I think a lot of people have a question, especially coming to a science show like ours, uh, that is, why are people even denying climate change? Why? Like, what's the point? And you know what? That's really hard to answer. However, there was a study in Nature Climate Change in 2012 that compared 1,540 Americans, and they asked a very simple question. How much risk do you believe climate change poses to human health, safety, or prosperity? Climate change is scary stuff. So measuring the risk that people believe they are going to experience is pretty important. When they did the study, they controlled for aspects of science literacy, mathematics understanding, and overall intelligence. So they weren't just like, dumb people do this. They could look at it and they could say, these people understand science, these people understand math, these people are of various IQ levels, and they can use statistics to compare those all and weight them all equally. And surprisingly, folks with greater science literacy, people who may actually be coming to a show like this one, said that they were less concerned with the risk of climate change. Only slightly less so, but they were still less. So then they kind of changed tack. Because you would think that people who don't understand science, they would be the ones who would be less concerned. Or at least I would think that. I would think if you don't know science, then you'd be like, well, this is dumb. I don't get it, and so therefore I'm not worried about it. But in fact, it wasn't the case. It was the other way around. But if you look at it as egalitarian versus hierarchical, now the numbers are cool. People who are egalitarian or believe in equality and that everybody is important and they understand the community around them as equally important with themselves, they were way more concerned about climate changes. Hierarchical people or people who believe that some are better than others and it's built in that way and some they care about those at their own level and maybe not those above or below them, they were less concerned, which is really interesting. I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, the study itself is kind of inconclusive. That's fine. But if you look at this study and you think about it this way, perhaps it has to do with compassion. Compassion about the environment around us. Compassion about the protection of our fellow man. The understanding that other people who live on islands, who live on the coast, are going to be affected by climate change, but so are the people who live in the middle, people who live near deserts, people who live in rainforests. Everyone is going to be affected, and if you have compassion for all of that, then of course you're gonna care more about climate change. There's also questions as to whether climate change affects me every day, and it may not. It may never affect you. You may never have to deal with the lasting effects of climate change, but you know who will? Your grandkids, or your great-grandkids, or your great-great-grandkids. Essentially, humanity in the future. If you want us to keep going, we're gonna have to do something about it. Maybe it's that the hierarchical folks are more likely to move forward and just think, you know what? I'm gonna get my head down. I'm not hurting climate change. I'm gonna put my head down, I'm gonna run. I'm just gonna do my thing. You know, all of those things are completely valid if short-sighted. In the end, there are a lot of conspiracies about science and the science of this and whether there's climate denying research that's being covered up, whether there's, uh, you know, also whether there are people are funding climate deniers. Maybe we'll do a future conspiracies episode. Let us know in the comments if you want us to do that. But the question is, when it comes to climate change, are we screwed, right? Are we screwed? 
we're not yet, but we're pretty close. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says that we will have to radically change our approach to energy production and consumption if we want to not go down the road of climate change. We may reach the point of no return for that decision by 2042. That's some scary stuff, man. 2042, they won't even have opened the Nickelodeon time capsule by then. That doesn't open until 2046. I'm excited about it. Been excited since I was a kid. We'll never see it, climate change. But what can we do to combat it? We'll get there later. So I'll leave you with this. Jason Box, who is on Twitter at climate underscore ice, is a widely published climatologist. And he tweeted on July 29th of 2014, if even a small fraction of Arctic sea floor carbon is released to the atmosphere, we're effed. Weather has affected all of human history. I mean, everything we've ever done has been affected by our weather and our climate. But weather has also affected our wars. For example, in World War II, Rob McKenzie at the University of Birmingham and Roger Timmis of the British Environment Agency looked at records of weather patterns from 1943 to 45. And they found that after massive air raids, the areas that the planes had flown over were cooler than similar areas nearby. That's called a contrail, not a chemtrail. Those are not a thing. If you think they might be a thing, let us know and we'll maybe do a conspiracy series. But what happens is a contrail or the trail of condensation that lies behind a plane can become seeds for larger cirrus clouds, which then block some of the sun's rays, which causes a shadier earth. And all it is is an airplane flying over. So this is humans affecting the weather. However, it might be that the weather can change whole plans of battle. I mean, not to mention that most battles would stop for rain back in the you know, Napoleonic era when we had flintlock muskets. You had to fill a flash pan filled with black powder. And if you had the flash pan full of black powder and it got wet, you couldn't fire your weapon. So if it started raining, they would just call it off, kind of like a baseball game. It's kind of silly. Plus, battles would stop for wintertime. You didn't usually battle in the winter because it was a lot harder. You didn't have snow plows getting stuff out of the way. But that kept going all the way up into the Second World War. On the morning of August 9th, 1945, a B-29 bomber was on its way to Japan to drop an atomic bomb on the city of Kokura. It was one of the largest arsenals still standing in Japan. So when they got there, they couldn't see. They couldn't see their targets. It was obscured by clouds. They went back and forth over the city three times, and they were like, you know what? Let's move on. They moved on to the secondary target, which is much more famous these days, called Nagasaki. We almost didn't bomb Nagasaki. We almost bombed Kokura. But because there were clouds, they couldn't bomb that city. Now, there has been some stories of whether those clouds were natural or whether they were from smoke, from fire bombings nearby, or... Author John Coaster Mullins said that he interviewed a POW in the city of Kokura, and they may have created an actual weather machine. I mean, sort of. There was a POW camp, he said in a quote, right next to the main downtown power plant. The Japanese has installed a large pipe that went from the power plant down into the river, and he stated that whenever B-29s were sighted over Kokura, he being the POW, the steam in the plant was diverted through this pipe into the river. That created enormous condensation clouds that obscured the city. 
they altered their own weather patterns for war. Now, this hasn't been confirmed by other authors, but John Coaster Mullen is a pretty well-respected author, and the book that he put this in is pretty well-respected. However, that being said, it's possible that it wasn't that, and it was just a natural weather pattern that changed the course of history. Not to mention there are other weather patterns, bigger ones like typhoons in the Pacific War when America was, was fighting against Japan, December 17, 1944, a typhoon spun up with winds estimated 145 miles an hour. Three destroyers in the U.S. Navy were capsized and sunk. Numerous other ships were heavily damaged. 146 airplanes were destroyed, and the storm killed 778 men. June 2nd and 3rd of 1945, a typhoon hit the Third Fleet with 50 to 60-foot seas, sustaining winds of 115 miles an hour and gusts of 150 miles an hour on the east of Okinawa. That damaged 33 ships, destroyed 76 airplanes, and killed six men. These weather events could have changed the course of the war. Not to mention, you know, Hitler assumed that Russia could be completely defeated in a summer, <laughs> and Russian winter rolled in. I think we all know what happened then. He did the same thing Napoleon did. Get out of there. Wasn't a good idea. Essentially, Russian winters were so cold that the Germans could not handle it. 100,000 cases of frostbite were reported in 1941, resulting in the amputation of nearly 15,000 limbs. Heavy machinery broke. Tanks and jeeps refused to start because diesel fuel can actually freeze. I learned that the hard way growing up in the north. And if it freezes, you're pretty much stuck. In the end, I think this is pretty clear. Respect the wrath of weather because the weather can change history. We aren't even as powerful as clouds, pretty much is what I learned while researching how weather affected war. Clouds changed the world. Isn't that insane? Weather has affected all of human history. I mean, everything we've ever done has been affected by our weather and our climate. But weather has also affected our wars. For example, in World War II, Rob McKenzie at the University of Birmingham and Roger Timmis of the British Environment Agency looked at records of weather patterns from 1943 to 45. And they found that after massive air raids, the areas that the planes had flown over were cooler than similar areas nearby. That's called a contrail, not a chemtrail. Those are not a thing. If you think they might be a thing, let us know and we'll maybe do a conspiracy series. But what happens is a contrail, or the trail of condensation that lies behind a plane, can become seeds for larger cirrus clouds, which then block some of the sun's rays, which causes a shadier Earth. And all it is is an airplane flying over. So this is humans affecting the weather. However, it might be that the weather can change whole plans of battle. I mean, not to mention that most battles would stop for rain back in the you know, Napoleonic era when we had flintlock muskets, you had to fill a flash pan filled with black powder. And if you had the flash pan full of black powder and it got wet, you couldn't fire your weapon. So if it started raining, they would just call it off, kind of like a baseball game. It's kind of silly. Plus battles would stop for winter time. You didn't usually battle in the winter because it was a lot harder. You didn't have snow plows getting stuff out of the way. But that kept going all the way up into the Second World War. On the morning of August 9th, 1945, a B-29 bomber was on its way to Japan to drop an atomic bomb on the city of Kokura. 
It was one of the largest arsenals still standing in Japan. So when they got there, they couldn't see. They couldn't see their targets. It was obscured by clouds. They went back and forth over the city three times, and they were like, you know what? Let's move on. They moved on to the secondary target, which is much more famous these days, called Nagasaki. We almost didn't bomb Nagasaki. We almost bombed Kokura. But because there were clouds, they couldn't bomb that city. Now, there has been some stories of whether those clouds were natural or whether they were from smoke from fire bombings nearby, or author John Coaster Mullen said that he interviewed a POW in the city of Kokura, and they may have created an actual weather machine. I mean, sort of. There was a POW camp, he said in a quote, right next to the main downtown power plant. The Japanese has installed a large pipe that went from the power plant down into the river. And he stated that whenever B-29s were sighted over Kokura, he being the POW, the steam in the plant was diverted through this pipe into the river. That created enormous condensation clouds that obscured the city. They altered their own weather patterns for war. Now, this hasn't been confirmed by other authors, but John Coaster Mullen is a pretty well-respected author, and the book that he put this in is pretty well-respected. However, that being said, it's possible that it wasn't that, and it was just a natural weather pattern that changed the course of history. Not to mention there are other weather patterns, bigger ones, like typhoons in the Pacific War when America was, was fighting against Japan. December 17, 1944, a typhoon spun up with winds estimated 145 miles an hour. Three destroyers in the U.S. Navy were capsized and sunk. Numerous other ships were heavily damaged. 146 airplanes were destroyed, and the storm killed 778 men. June 2nd and 3rd of 1945, a typhoon hit the Third Fleet with 50 to 60-foot seas, sustaining winds of 115 miles an hour and gusts of 150 miles an hour on the east of Okinawa. That damaged 33 ships, destroyed 76 airplanes, and killed six men. These weather events could have changed the course of the war. Not to mention, you know, Hitler assumed that Russia could be completely defeated in a summer. <laughs> and Russian winter rolled in. I think we all know what happened then. He did the same thing Napoleon did. Get out of there. Wasn't a good idea. Essentially, Russian winters were so cold that the Germans could not handle it. 100,000 cases of frostbite were reported in 1941, resulting in the amputation of nearly 15,000 limbs. Heavy machinery broke. Tanks and jeeps refused to start because diesel fuel can actually freeze. I learned that the hard way growing up in the north. And if it freezes, you're pretty much stuck. In the end, I think this is pretty clear. Respect the wrath of weather because the weather can change history. We aren't even as powerful as clouds, pretty much is what I learned while researching how weather affected war. Clouds changed the world. Isn't that insane? But what about ancient men? Ancient men and women were living outside, right? They didn't have houses, they didn't have central air. So how did they deal with the weather? So right now, and for the last 10,000 years or so, we've been in a fairly stable climate situation. The Earth's climate system, however, it went through a series of abrupt oscillations and reorganizations during the last ice age, which was between 18,000 years ago and 80,000 years ago. They last for a while. Our climate represents this interglacial period 
that began, again, about 10,000 years ago. Ice ages are pretty rough. It's a cold period for thousands of years, and they happen about every 100,000 years. So we're currently in the middle between two ice ages. The thing is, we came up during an ice age. Humanity was around for a couple million years. We've had ancestors living on this planet. In the last few hundred thousand years, they've been evolving. You can check that out in our human series. If you haven't listened to it, download that one. But regardless, we eventually got out of the Ice Age and we started living our lives on this pretty warm planet. It's a very temperate climate. And we started learning about our weather. One of those things that happens when you know humans come together and we start learning about the things around us is we start forming societies and we start forming traditions. And one of those traditions that gets a bad rap is rain dancing. This is a ritual uh, in a lot of native societies and indigenous cultures where folks would dance and to imitate wind and to invoke the rain from the spirits or the gods. And they wanted to pay homage and they wanted a good season because they understood how weather patterns worked, but they didn't understand the intricacies of them. They just knew that rain would come now or that would not come now. And they would look for it at specific times of year. So Sonny Skyhawk, he's a Siganu Lakota. Uh, He's also a filmmaker. Maybe you've seen him in movies. He's actually pretty famous. And he says, yes, we had special dances that paid homage to certain things, and especially the seasons. And yes, we prayed for rain, and sometimes we had dances that wished our rain on our corn or on fields or crops, as well as on our tribal enemies. Which brings us back to warfare and weather. When our warriors or medicine people painted our horses for battle, they painted their rumps with raindrops, so as to wish rain on the enemy, for rain to wash away our tracks when we went to raid or acquire horses from other tribes. Water has always been considered equal to medicine amongst our people, mainly because without it, we cease to survive as humans. This is uh, an understanding of the weather that some modern people don't grasp. Native Americans in the Midwestern parts of the United States, what is now the modern United States, often tracked and followed known weather patterns. And they would offer to perform rain dances for settlers in return to trade items because they understood the weather better than the people who were settling that land. It was a a little, it was pretty clever, actually, if you think about it. And even the U.S. government fell for it. And in 1891, Congress spent $19,000 to conduct rain-making tests in Texas under the guidance of a guy named Robert Dryenforth. I've read about this guy, super interesting fella. He was influenced by a publication that said rain was caused by the loud noises of explosions because it would often rain after battles. And they didn't know why, but they figured it was the explosions. So he set up a series of 68 highly explosive balloons filled with hydrogen and oxygen, and they blasted away up at the skies trying to make it rain in places where it hadn't recently. And uh, they even fired mortars from cannons and sent kites up carrying sticks of dynamite. They did all sorts of stuff. Turns out, of course, explosives don't really make rain. But whatever. It wasn't just the Native Americans and indigenous here in North America that understood weather patterns. The ancient Mayans uh, have something called the Mayan water temple. It was found by archeologists. And what happened is it was this pool of water and people would offer up sacrifices to the rain god, whose name was Shock. He would drop these items into the Clara Blanca pools. This is in Belize, by the way. And because we found those items today and we dated them, we can get a good picture of how the climate was running back at this time period during, during the ancient Mayan culture. 
And for the Mayans, just like for the natives here, it all came down to rain. Their empire rose to prominence during a pretty rainy period in Earth's climate history. There was plenty of water, there was plenty of food, and that meant that you could have a pretty hardy population who was very healthy. However, once a drought came, they could find a lot more items sacrificed to the rain god, the Clara Blanca pools. And they think that this might be when the Mayans started experiencing hardships and perhaps even crumbled which is pretty crazy, all because of the weather. So then as modern technology and the industrial revolution spread across the planet, the 19th century meteorologist James Pollard Espy developed a convection theory of storms. It was one of the first times we started really studying how air moved and how humidity could change and sweep around a planet. And it was hard to study on a planetary capacity until we had satellites and we could look down on the earth from far, far away. But this was some of the first studies, and they found that heated air rises, expands, and then cools, and water vapor condenses, and it becomes rain or snow, beginnings of the understanding of the water cycle. And he was convinced that he knew how to produce rain on a schedule, that he could create a prediction model and then build it out and create a machine that could do it. He spent decades proposing that Congress pay him to create forest fires at regular intervals of 20 miles in a north-south line extending for 600 miles. And those forest fires would be able to kind of cause rain. In 1838, Senator John Crittenden of Kentucky warned that even if Espy's proposal would work, that he might enshroud us in continual clouds <laughs> and indeed falsify the promise that the earth should be mo no more submerged. And if he possesses the power of causing rain, he may also possess the power of withholding it. Sounds pretty pretty scary. But when you think about that, when we think about how our weather affects us throughout our history, we're not just thinking about North Americans, Central Americans, and modern Americans. We also have to think about the whole planet. Deserts have changed and grown. Even since we've started monitoring them, certain deserts around our planet have gotten larger. Rainforests have gotten smaller. Snowpacks, like here in California, have gotten lesser. And things are changing all over the planet. Now, whether we're doing that or it's a natural process, you'll have to check out our other chunk on that. But is this really that different to say we want rain now and what we're doing now to try and get it to fall on us? In November of 2007, Georgia was in one of the worst droughts in decades. And the governor of Georgia, Sonny Perdue, along with lawmakers, local ministers, probably members of the public, stood on the steps of the state capitol and prayed for rain. Is that really that different from rain dances, from sacrifices to the god shock, from trying to hire some guy to light forest fires and make it rain? It's not really. We gotta do whatever we can because the weather can affect us all. We've talked a lot about climate change and we've talked about mass extinction, we've talked about how ancient people have handled the weather. But what about our, you know, descendants? How are they gonna handle the weather? How are people 200 years from now gonna handle the weather that we're leaving them? Because let's be honest, we're affecting it, so we're gonna leave it to them. They're inheriting the weather that we give them. In 1946, Irving Langmuir and Vincent Schaefer discovered that they could create ice crystals inside of a super cooled cloud and they could make snow, they could create it. That's a pretty big deal. Because if you can make snow, we've shown in the past 
that if we can make snow or we can change the weather, we can affect whole battles. We can change where things happen. We can change how things happen. We can change how battles play out. And if you do it on purpose, technically you're weaponizing weather, right? There was an Operation Popeye in the 70s. It was a highly classified program where clouds would get seeded with silver iodide and lead iodide. And that could extend monsoon periods by an average of a month, 30 to 45 days. And they used it in Southeast Asia during 1967 to 1972, which you might recognize as when we were in Vietnam. <laughs> so this was a way for the United States to try and weaponize the weather. They spent five years and $21.6 million seeding clouds all over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. All they were trying to do, mess up military supply routes. Then the NMOD came out, the Environmental Modification Convention, which is an international treaty that the military and other hostile use of environment modification techniques is no longer allowed. They don't want to have widespread, long-lasting, severe effects on the Earth from military modification of the weather. This came out in 1977 in Geneva, and it entered into law, or international treaty, really, in October of 1978. So since then, we haven't really been allowed to mess with the weather militarily. That being said, we still do mess with it, and we probably will continue to do so as we learn more about it. Many countries seed their clouds. Uh, entire cities in China seed clouds. China has a weather modification department where they employ and train 32,000 people using more than 12,000 anti-aircraft guns and rocket launchers in addition to about 30 planes to shoot silver iodide into the clouds. That sounds kind of like the 19th century Americans, doesn't it? During the Beijing Olympics, China promised the world great weather, and they delivered because they launched 1,104 rain dispersal rockets from 21 sites around the city to ensure clear skies during the Olympics' opening ceremony. That's insane. But cloud seeding is pretty interesting because you can make it rain or you can disperse clouds. If you make it rain elsewhere, those clouds never make it to another spot. So again, you could use this for weapons. Let's hope that nobody's doing that considering it's currently against your Geneva Convention. But when you do that, the King of Thailand owns a proprietary patent on cloud seeding, or at least on one technique using to do cloud seeding. The U.S. uses the technique to dissipate fog around airports and to minimize the size of hailstones because that could cause all sorts of problems with flights. There's even a conspiracy theory about something called HARP. So according to this, HARP has been using this electromagnetic radiation stuff, not very specific, to alter the weather by shooting it into the ionosphere. The ionosphere is a layer of the atmosphere that AM radio bounced off. It's a charged section of the atmosphere. And that could maybe according to these theories, be altering the weather. Here's a quote from the Secretary of Defense, William S. Cohen. You can actually get from the Defense Department's website. And it says, others, implying terrorists, are engaging even in an eco-type of terrorism whereby they can alter the climate, set off earthquakes, volcanoes remotely through the use of electromagnetic waves. So there are plenty of ingenious minds out there that are at work finding ways in which they can wreak terror upon other nations. It's real, and that's the reason why we have to intensify our counterterrorism efforts. Thing is, a lot of terrorists aren't part of the Geneva Conventions. Maybe you knew that already. So they can militarize it, even if we don't. There are also things that we're talking about in the future. This is mostly now, modern technology. But the future, what are we going to do to combat climate change? 
Obviously, we can use computer models. We can take natural disasters. We can look at pandemics, and we can create models around those. So why not more about the weather and how to combat that? Some big ways that you can help, or we can all help, is we can build cities that are safer, that are more sustainable. There's something called the urban heat effect, where when you build cities a certain way, they raise the temperature of the surrounding area, and that could cause climate changes, or at least weather changes. It's definitely a thing. You can look that up for sure. You can also bring food sources closer to your home. You can live more sustainably, lower your carbon footprint, eat, eat locally. All of these things are ways that we can fix our carbon output and then change how we live in the future. And chances are, in the future, our descendants are going to do these things because they're going to have to. Because it's only going to get worse if we don't make changes. If we're still driving things all over the place and shipping things all over the place, we're going to have a lot of carbon flying into the atmosphere forever unless we change what it is that's running those engines, what it is that's burning those fossil fuels. If we can stop burning them all together, that would be even better. But hey, you can't. It's still the main way we can get energy. So there's this thing called geoengineering, which is the idea that we can alter the planet now. We've got enough technology, we can make it better. Obviously, things like terraforming are part of geoengineering, which is changing a whole chunk of the planet to whatever we would like. And to do this, we're gonna need some real big construction projects. For example, solar management. Solar management will reduce the amount of sunlight that hits the surface of the planet. It seems pretty extreme, but this is one way we can keep the planet from warming up while we wait for the carbon in the atmosphere to dissipate. To reduce the sunlight that hits the planet, future generations may have to inject reflective particles into the atmosphere above rain so that they won't rain back down, but way, way up in the upper atmosphere. That way it will reflect more sunlight out into space. Once that's reflected, it won't heat up the planet, and thus our planet will cool off. We could have those particles floating in the stratosphere for up to two years, reflecting light and preventing sun from heating up the lower levels of the atmosphere. I sort of already said that. Harvard physicist David Keith has suggested that it would even be possible to engineer particles into tiny little disks with self-levitating properties that could keep them remaining in the stratosphere for 20 years, blocking that sunlight. There are even talks of putting sunshades out in space, far enough away from the Earth where you wouldn't actually see a shadow on our planet, but close enough that it could block huge sections of sunlight. In doing so, it would achieve a similar effect to the particles in the atmosphere, but it would take a lot more resources to get it that far away. But if we did that, it would be a permanent solution. It could just sit there until we would have to replace it because the environment of space is pretty harsh. That would lower surface temperatures again. We would still have high levels of carbon. We would still have high levels of methane, but we can handle that. The Earth overall can't handle that. We could also remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's one of the only geoengineering efforts that's attempted so far, and it was aimed at pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And to do it, they're using a natural substance, algae. Algae can absorb that carbon dioxide because it does it all the time. It's a plant. So geoengineers fertilized patches of the Southern Sea with powdered iron. That powdered iron created a local algae bloom. That algae bloom could suck in more carbon dioxide and produce oxygen. This is great. This is a great idea. Unfortunately, the diatoms released 
carbon back into the atmosphere when they died instead of just transporting to the deep ocean after they died. They thought what would happen is as they seeded and created the algae blooms, they would absorb all that CO2 and then sink to the bottom of the ocean with it, trapping it down there, which is similar to what happens in glaciers. They capture a lot of gases. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But it's a really cool idea, and it's a step in the right direction. Tim Kruger, the head of Oxford Martin School's geoengineering efforts, suggests that heating limestone might help, because if you add lime to seawater, it absorbs almost twice as much carbon dioxide as it used to absorb, which would also counteract ocean acidification. Also a big deal and a big problem, not necessarily weather-related in this case, but you get the point. Unfortunately, until we do more studies, we won't know what people are going to do in the future to try and combat climate change, try and fix the weather. There might be more cloud seeding efforts to try and make it rain in areas where the deserts have encroached on farmland. There might be more irrigation efforts to try and get areas like in Egypt, where they're trying to get more farmland to feed more people. And in fact, for a while in the country of Egypt, there was a second Nile plant to try and pull water from Lake Nasser all the way into the Mediterranean. Um, it was literally a giant river parallel to the Nile. And how that would have affected the local weather is unknown. I mean, there are all sorts of different ways humans are attempting to change their local weather patterns and to change our overall climate. But our best chance of survival might be to leave, to let it be, to leave it alone, to let it work itself out. Because right now, if we just left it alone now, it's still going to take decades upon decades to return to normal because we released so much carbon and methane into our atmosphere. So maybe we should just get out of here, leave it, turn it into a national park. <laughs> be a good one to visit. Good camping, I hear. Whoa, you guys, I had forgotten how intense this episode was. Just leave it all behind? Maybe that's the best plan? Wow. I mean, who knows? Tell me what you think. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Seeker or me at Trace Dominguez. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating or a thumbs up or five stars or whichever possible interaction you can give us on your platform of choice. I hope you understand the weather a bit better after all this and climate change a lot better. If you have more questions, there are lots of resources all over the internet. And thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. We'll be back next week with more super fascinating deep dives into the world around us using science. I'm Trace. Thanks again. Thank you.